2: And contains themes that some listeners may find upsetting. Participants' names have been changed to protect their identities. From Justice Stories of Survival with Edwina Grosvenor.
0: We have to understand trauma because we have to understand that feelings come from that trauma. And then behaviours come from those feelings. We have to change the question from what's wrong with her to what's happened to her. It is our job, I believe, in the prison system and really, as humans in general, to provide those safe spaces to allow people to tell their stories. I have seen women who have just... If nothing else, they've just told their story and it's changed them unbelievably.
2: Four women, four stories four tales of trauma from outside and inside prison.
3: So I was raped at 18 uh, and I got my first remand at 19 and that was a, I think it was essentially designed to be a short, sharp shock. I'll never forget that journey. I'll never forget it. It was, so it was the 7th of December and so it's that kind of dark, wintry evening and I'm kind of driving through the city where I lived at that time and I just watched normal people living their everyday lives out of this little perspex window just thinking why why am I going where I'm going this was not in the plan this week
2: Katie's story
3: I was born into uh, an addicted family. Uh, So both my parents were uh, opiate-dependent heroin users. Uh, They also used a lot of prescription meds as well. So in terms of the environment that I grew up in, it was unpredictable, chaotic, um, and boundaryless in every sense of the word. So, you know, and that has obvious, obvious impacts on you know, the kind of basic development. You're you at home, you're a little kid, you you know, you you see videos on social media now of daddies teaching their little girls how to brush their teeth or standing in a mirror saying, you are beautiful, you are empowered, you are strong, you can achieve. My house wasn't like that. It so wasn't like that. um You know, we weren't taught, me and my younger brother, he's five years, uh, my junior, we weren't taught how to, you know, brush our teeth, get dressed, any of those kind of things. um We lived, and, and I say this obviously with the benefit of hindsight, in survival mode, effectively. And the way I've heard it best described now is toxic stress. It's like a stress that was toxic to us emotionally and mentally. It's very prevalent with, you know, people using drugs that neglect of children can, kind of comes hand in hand. So we were removed, put into care... I went through various different kind of foster placements and was uh, sexually abused in the one of the last long-term placements I went into um which kind of you know I already didn't attach to this world very much I hadn't really had much in the way of reasons to trust people or depend on things or you know my, my I know I know that my life looked nothing like Lassie or the littlest hobo or Neighbours or Home and Away it, My my life just wasn't like that so I, I lived with a mindset of that's never Going to become a reality for me And I think at 14 I just Hit a point where I stopped Believing the dream you know um, I stopped believing that it could be I stopped Wanting it to be and I made a decision that I was going to be in full control of my whole life At all times and I would defend that right and ability to the deaf if I had to. I think something in me snapped, essentially. Um, at the age of 14? Yeah, at the age of 14. And so, I, you know, I opted to go back into the kind of residential care system, into children's homes, and, and I know that, like, many children are kind of traumatised by that, by that removal from any kind of family connection. It was a gift for me because it meant that... There was nobody pretending to be a parent anymore and I didn't have to pretend to be somebody's child anymore. I, it, it kind of fit in with the decision that I'd made that that no, no more, no one's hurting me again. And I suppose my developmental teenage experiences happened in that kind of setting with other broken or lost children who hadn't been taught boundaries or, you know, a, a sense of a moral code or anything like that and... Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of a bit of a free-for-all, really, and, and that's where kind of substances came in. And and at that time in my life, I don't believe it was anything other than, you know, adolescent experimentation. It wasn't, you know, I didn't go from naught to heroin. There was a, you know, a pathway through. Um, I spoke earlier, didn't I, about that kind of toxic stress, and what substances did for me is remove the toxicity. They eradicated the toxicity completely... And I I got to exist in a mental and emotional plane that was without fear, that was without consequence, that was without attachment, that was without connection, and was was without accountability. And um, that's the only real time I felt kind of truly free. The problem with substances is they cost money. (laughs) And... um, being, you know, I was on kind of state funding at that time, and I think it was something like three pound ninety three a week pocket money. Um, you can't buy much kind of LSD or alcohol with three pound ninety three. So um, that's kind of where crime came into the picture. And I'd I'd been arrested and cautioned once before. I think when I was maybe twelve, I'd always felt like the different kid because I, I went to kind of mainstream school, and but I was I was the only girl in my year who was a foster child so there was that inherent difference I already felt incredibly different internally but there was that actual difference as well in that I didn't have the standard kind of 3.2 children parental setup and my foster parents weren't paid kind of great amounts of money and stuff so I used to go to the big shopping center and steal uh, food and sweets and and give them away essentially it was it was about trying to get connection really you know um and that was the only way i knew how i knew that i didn't have the actual emotional skill to build a bond develop a bond maintain a bond and nurture a bond i that was completely missing from my education and so it was well i'll give you stuff and we'll be mates Mm -hmm. And and it was as simple as that, um, but again, when you're having to steal the stuff to give and it doesn't belong to you, um, the law isn't appreciative of that. And so, you know, the first time was a, a, a kind of caution and I got a rollicking off the um, chief inspector and he terrified me and I was never going to do it again and I got the rollicking when I got home and all of that stuff, but, you know, fast forward a couple of years later and I... I was living on much more of a needs basis at that time, so whereas other kids kind of at 14, 15, you know, maybe have Saturday jobs or are getting pocket money, and that wasn't my reality. So if I wanted something, I had to go and get it. If I wanted new clothes, go and steal them, etc., etc. If I wanted to use, go and get something, steal it, sell it, etc. And so that's how kind of criminality and substance misuse just started to interweave in my life.
0: So what age were you when you took your first drug and how did it progress from there and what did it look like on a daily basis for you as a child getting
3: into addiction? The first drug I ever picked up was alcohol and um, it was um, on my 14th birthday. And I I kind of chipped in with all my friends and we'd bought a litre bottle of Martini Extra Dry. Yeah, classy. (laughs) Um, With no chaser either. Um, And I drank half of it neat. Um, now bear in mind, this is my first experience with alcohol. Um, and then they donated me the other half and it would have been rude not to drink it. So, so you know, that's the kind of first ever experience. It was, It was far beyond what was sensible and there was no kind of logical thought process. From there... It, it, at that time, what was kind of recreational were things like... There were uh, usually prescription meds, things like tomazepam, diazepam, things like that, usually mixed with alcohol, which has a, you know, a quite wild effect. It's quite unpredictable, the effect And of how that.
0: did it work? Was it a group of friends who were saying, here you go, this is how you do it?
3: There would be seven or eight, similar age, usually school friends, in a park somewhere, and somebody's dad... Had a bottle of diazepam in the cupboard or a bottle of diazipam in the cupboard, and then you know some they'd they 'd be stolen and someone would bring them and you 'd take one each you know it was there was no um influence necessarily or there was no no hierarchy in the group that I was in that that particularly influenced um i think I think we were all receptive for different reasons at that time um and and for some of the people in that group, it was purely adolescent experimentation and recreational for others I think it served a far greater purpose and I think I was one of those so I, I I go into this kind of residential children's home and they because I was then not attached to any kind of conventional family setup they they go to find my dad um, who I hadn't seen for maybe 10 11 years at that point and they set up this meeting with him and I had the memory I had the, the the image the mental image he he used to look like um, Tom Selleck when he played uh, Magnum PI uh, so that was what I was gonna walk through this door and see on the day they arranged the visit and um, and I remember being really scared that I wouldn't feel the emotion that I was supposed to I say that with inverted commas feel. When I saw him, you know, so I've gone to this social services office and I've walked through the door, met him and um, he looked like skeletal and I cried, but not because of the emotion of the experience, because of the shock of the deterioration of him and, you know, my dad was still using and, and social services at that time weren 't really it i was I was highly intelligent highly highly intelligent so i 've immediately gone and found out what bus I need to get how, how to get there you know, and, and I had memories of how to get there from when I was five um, and just followed the same path and it was right so so it wasn 't supervised contact when I had unsupervised contact at 14, 15 years old with what was essentially a, an addict meant that I then had the same access as my friends had to far stronger drugs tomazepam you know far stronger quantities of of different drugs and even though he you know tried to kind of stop me and and, and tried to kind of steer me the right way for me it was that same peer acceptance so I'd gone from chocolate bars from Sainsbury's to green tomazepam eggs so
0: you take the drugs off your father that he was using Mm -hmm. in order to feed your habit
3: yeah
0: and did he know you were taking them would he supply them for you
3: Yeah. No, he would never have supplied them for me, no, no. But he, um, you know, he. I, I think he was just guilty. So he will have known that they weren't there. He's an addict, so he'll have known exactly how many were there. And then I was gone, there were a lot gone. And then, you know, he, he died. He died 10 months later. And so I, I think I'd been having maybe weekly contact for 10 months after not seeing him for 11 years. That was the beginning of two events that were the catalyst for just absolute spiral into full-on heroin day-to-day addiction. Um, you know, he died, and I was at a party that night, and the the social workers phoned me, and no, I'd phoned them to say I'm not coming back because they always used to report me missing person. Um so I'd called them and just said, you know, I'm not coming back and they said, You must, you must, you have to come back, you have to come back but they wouldn't tell me why. So I was like, No, I'm not doing it and then I get back in the morning and find out my dad's dead Whereas, you know, I'd been at a house party, drinking alcohol, taking drugs, so it was probably ecstasy and things like that at that time. And um and that was just another confirmation that, you know, you're wrong, you're no good. You're never destined for anything. You couldn't even be there when your own dad died. And and I kinda at, at that time, I moved social circles. So I moved into a social circle with, um, in the homeless, in homeless services, which put me into contact with heroin addicts. And for me, it was a bit like a moth to a flame because I'd had an inherent curiosity all my life about what was so powerful about that drug that it could make my parents give up. Me essentially, and my brother. So this is, you know, so I'd had that inherent curiosity mm. all my life, and I, I didn't use heroin at first because I still had a fear of it. I used methadone first, that was sold to me by some guy who lived in the other homeless hostel across the road. You know, it kind of, it just started to shift up a gear at that point and started almost the beginning of a, just losing a decade in my life to. Prisons to the criminal justice system in various kind of ways, shapes and forms. And yeah, just a a complete and utter soul decline.
0: Where was your mother at this point? Do you know where she was and your brother?
3: So my brother, the long-term foster placement I'd gone into at nine with him, the one that I left at 14, the one I'd been sexually abused in, he wasn't under any risk in that placement, so he stayed. So when I opted to go into care, it was to get away from what was happening to me, he stayed there. Uh, my mum, I hadn't seen for quite a few years at that point. She, So my mum used to do, like, crazy things. Like, she would turn up at, outside our school um, with whatever latest boyfriend on a motorbike and try and take us and things like that. So they'd they'd kept me away from my mum. They'd moved us to town. We weren't in our kind of hometown anymore. We weren't with other kids we knew, et cetera, et cetera. So I hadn't seen them for quite a while. And my, you know, I, I, I think my shame at the lifestyle I was beginning to live meant that I hadn't wanted any contact with them. And I, I hated my mum, I hated her.
0: So even though your parents were doing things that upset you emotionally, do you think, because there's often a big debate about removing children from their parents, would you have rather stayed in that dysfunctional dysfunctional environment or, I mean, as you said, it was a gift to be removed. So from your point of view, you wanted to go.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I got hold of my um, social services files uh, when I was... Maybe about 10 years ago, so I was about 20, 28, 29. And um, the catalogue... So bear in mind, that I, I have my memory, um, not all of that. The things that I remember were documented, but on the stuff that was documented alone, when I read that back as an adult, I was astounded as to why they hadn't taken me sooner. Why at six... Why they took me at six and started moving me into... Longer term foster placements, why they hadn't taken me when, you know, I, I was four and I, I was turning up at hospitals with unexplained injuries and burns and, you know, except why didn't they take me then? A social worker turned up at our house one day. I don't remember this, but it's documented. And I was um, uh, strapped into a pram. Outside in the front garden, in torrential rain, nobody knew how long I'd been there. Mum was nowhere to be seen. You know, it was absolutely the right thing to do to remove me, without a shadow of a doubt. My my only question was, why not sooner? You know, I, I don't know how much they knew or didn't, and I know one thing I do know is that as I became an addict, I was extremely deceptive. So, you know, they just did in the end, and I'm grateful for that, yeah.
2: From Justice, you're listening to Stories of Survival with Edwina Grosvenor. Tales of trauma from outside and inside prison. Today, we're hearing Katie's story.
0: So how did the actual addiction take hold from sort of going from where you classify yourself as a non-addict to yes. suddenly being a heroin addict? How does that happen?
3: So I had had the earlier involvement with criminal justice in terms of, um, I'd started to shoplift and things like that. And I'd had a supervision order, and through this supervision order, it was the only order I'd ever engaged with. They were, the, the, the youth justice team that I was working with at that time were amazing, and they supported me to get a flat, and to, uh, I'd managed to get a job, I'd managed to like myself a job as the um, assistant manageress of a restaurant um, I could talk a big get, I didn't have a qualification I didn't even have GCSEs, I don't know why they gave me this job um, but I was really proud and it, and it felt like my life was going to take an upturn, it really did fr- through the support of, of this um, supervision team and what happened was I, I'd had the job five days and because I was living in a different town to where I was working I had to walk through this park and I was attacked and raped Random encounter, I was, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. It was literally like that. I went, I re- immediately I reported it. You know, they, they went through the kind of process. They secured a conviction, a very positive experience for, from a, an arrest or outcome perspective, that was great. From a personal perspective, it destroyed me. And um, I, I didn't want to live anymore. And heroin was the only medication that made survival possible. So in the same way as a diabetic needs insulin, I needed heroin to just medicate the darkness that he'd left me with, and it was the only thing that did. Counselling didn't, victim support didn't, you know, the, the, the five-year sentence that he got didn't, Um, you know, contact with friends didn't, trying to live life normally didn't. You know, I lost, I lost the job as a result of that. A few weeks later, I, I spoke to them about going back to work. They'd had a lot of negative press about the fact that that you know a young female employee was walking through a major park late at night and hadn't been offered a, a taxi home or something like that. And and they took my job, so it kind of everything went, everything went, and um, and and I, yeah, like I just gave up. I just gave up, and I completely surrendered myself to to day-to-day heroin dependence, because that's what happened really quickly. So then, in terms of how it altered my life, my whole every waking moment then becomes consumed with, OK, you know, I, I don't live the kind of lifestyle that can fund the heroin addiction, so so then it's, it's 24-7 criminality, you know, proceeds of crime, scoring. It's as simple as that. Use the drugs. Then I've got to think about the next one, because it lasts about eight hours, so I know it's going to run out soon. So whilst I still feel okay, I need to go and make the investment for the next one. And it's just like that. Day after day after day after day after day after day. With crime comes consequence. The, the courts tried to help me. Some there, there are still some judges' remarks in sentencing that I remember to this day. And that's, you know, we're talking 15 or 20 years ago. You know, and they tried to give me different orders I, I had a drug treatment and testing order at one point which earned me two more pages on my DBS CRB now uh, because of all the breaches. I've got like two, there's 15 convictions for breaches because I couldn't get it together. I couldn't, you know, my, my so imagine, imagine living in a world where everything else that you can see, hear, touch, taste and feel has gone apart from heroin so that's it so if it doesn't affect the you know the ability to gain or the ability to use or isn't somehow connected to it's filtered out it doesn't exist family members don't exist children don't exist you know jobs don't exist normal everyday society and living life doesn't exist and it's not it's not that that was a choice You know, the the, the evidence was there as to why I needed to medicate the way that I did because I believed that that that's... I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that it did something for me that that I needed because they tried to help with with different sentences. You know, they they sentenced me to counselling once and it was part of a probation order. And I went and I met this lovely counsellor and she was really nice... And on my first session, I told her all about my life story and she kind of knew from my pre-sentence report that I'd, I'd been through a lot. And she offered to lend me £30, which I thought was amazing. And I took it and I never saw her again. You know, so even the good interventions from the good people were naive. They were naive to how, what the drivers in my life were, um... And so I ended up, obviously, breaches, I can't turn up to a 9am appointment, I can't, like, you know, if 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 any heroin dependent addict ever manages to make a 9am appointment, it's such a momentous thing, it speaks of motivation and willingness on a level that the London Marathon doesn't, it, seriously. You know, and um, and I just couldn't do that. So it meant that I couldn't attend probation appointments. I couldn't attend court. I never did. You know, I, I was always had one warrant or another out for me. I was always ducking and diving down back alleys and ending up in even more difficult situations because I, I'm trying to stay out of the police. You know, out of their eyesight. And um, and then I start getting prison sentences. So can I
0: ask? Um, what was the period of time between being raped that? evening to ending up in prison
3: it was about a year for the first for the first remand so I was raped at 18 uh, and I got my first remand at 19 and that was a I think it was essentially designed to be a short sharp shock uh, it was a two-week remand just before Christmas it was only two weeks it was only two, two weeks week sentence no no I was on remand right. so I didn't know I was only going to be in there for two weeks when I went there but I'll never forget that that journey and the sweatbox. Uh, sweat box mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a better way to name that thing, but that's what we call also it. Also
0: known as a prison <laughs> van. Prison van,
3: <laughs> That's what it's called, yeah, prison van. Um, I'll never forget that journey. I'll never forget it. It was So it was the 7th of December, and so it's that kind of dark, wintry evening, and I'm kind of driving through the city where I lived at that time, and I just watched normal people living their everyday lives out of this little perspex window just thinking, why, why am I going where I'm going? And you were able to, like, this was not in the plan. This was not in the plan, like, how did this happen? And I, I even know the song that was playing on the radio, it was such a poignant moment. And um, and then, you know, I, I am resilient. Everything I've ever been through bred into me A kind of warrior survival mode and a strength that has been an absolute asset in my later life now I've learned how to channel it positively and so I I walked onto the prison it was HMP Risley which was had a female wing at that time and I walked on there and I saw everyone and I thought nah this is just like a big children's home I know how to play this and so essentially what happened uh, off the back of that, just that two-week sentence, I went back to court two weeks later and I, I probably said all the right things. And, but I, I walked out of, of court that day and, uh, and I just thought, well, that's society's worst consequence for me. Now I'm going to go all out. And that's how it escalated from community sentences into custodial. And I'd, I'd hit a threshold then. They couldn't sentence me to less anymore because there was nothing else to try. And so it was custody every single time after that, and the sentences just got longer and longer and longer.
0: And the longest sentence you served was how long?
3: So the last two sentences I did, so I served um, a two-year, one-month, and I served the best part of it because I kept getting positive MDTs in prison. So I would MDT get... Oh, sorry, mandatory, mandatory drug propaganda. testing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so... They have random drug testing, which which randomly comes up every month without fail. Mm -hmm. Um, I was also on frequent testing as well, Um, and then the actual other mandatories. So I was notching up 42 days out of what should have been my time to go home, and I had to serve it. So I did two years, one month. I was out for two weeks, and then I was sentenced to uh, 32 months for another year.
0: Was there a part of you that actually thought, you know what? prison's not so bad, I don't mind being there?
3: In, in some senses, yes. I mean, prison for me was just as to- toxically stressful an environment as my childhood home was, but I had refined the art of, of surviving that or appearing to survive that mentally. Emotionally, I don't know that I did. You know, j- just the noise levels alone in a prison is toxic. So the guy the guy who raped me, so he came from behind me. I only heard his footsteps and then he had hold of me. It was that quick. In a prison environment, on the upper landings, footsteps are really heavy and they kind of rattle and you can hear them. So when officers would come behind me or the inmates would come behind me, it, I was just on that state of shock and over alert, like hyper vigilance at all times. And yeah, it's not good.
0: (laughs) And it's quite an interesting point because we know that prisons are a very patriarchal culture. We know that they're ultra masculine places. So for a woman, Mm -hmm. you're in a woman's prison, Mm -hmm. yet how did that gender Mm -hmm. part play out for you? in the sense that, of course, there's male officers in women's prisons, but how did that feel for you, being a woman and having suffered violence and trauma at the hands of a man? How did that manifest within the prison?
3: It, um, if I was ever more likely to have a negative reaction to an officer, it would be a male one. And I, I, I'm i not... I was never... I'm not, like, a difficult person to arrest or imprison in the sense of I'm a bit old-school and you got me, yes, I did it, off we pop, let's go. I, I kind of resigned myself to the outcome. So I, I wasn't a difficult inmate in that... I say that, my security record probably says different. Um, but but in terms of fighting or violence towards officers or the police, that wasn't really my thing. I, I I understood on some level, you know, that there's a thing I did and there's a consequence to be paid for that, so I'm just going to pay it and not fight you all the way. However, if... Um, if i ever got a sense of domination from a man that's when i would end up getting on the netting which means that they have to call outside security teams in and that's the, what
0: they um call the suicide netting to stop people jumping off yeah. wings down um, onto the lower level
3: yeah yeah so it's it, essentially that's it's uh, it's just a wire netting in between the upper tiers and the lower tier so that if somebody did jump off that it would kind of prevent the fall but it, it, everybody kind of knows that it, you're not supposed to go on there. If you, obviously if you've not made a genuine effort to end your life or something, you're not you're not meant to be on there. And so if I got a whiff of male domination that didn't feel safe, I'd just be like, right, okay, now you you're gonna pay for this now. Now you're gonna have to go and get eight more to lift me off. And I'd what I would do is I would wait until they all came and then would get off myself and walk into my cell. And it's like I can't. i I have to even the stakes somehow here because you know you don't need to dominate me to get me to comply
0: and so if people were successful in um getting you to comply Mm -hmm. and sort of calm down who would that usually be how would that usually come about
3: yeah people who showed me kindness kindness was the way i had a better nature I just didn't know how to access it. Mm-hmm. Those with a better nature helped me to access my better nature. So those who were gentle and uh, can- just kind, kind is the best way I can use to describe it, but it, 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 yeah, it doesn't define me anymore. I'm no longer her. She doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a number in a system, but it's, mm-hmm. it's gone in a puff of smoke. She doesn't exist any longer. But without, you know, there, there were times later where I... I needed, I needed kindness, and I needed to know that there were some good ones, so to speak, officers who, because that's who I went to when I when I finally made a decision that I don't want to die, I don't want to die actually, shocker. It took me ten years to work that out. Mm. I don't want to die, and I started to want to live. It, it wasn't the ones who tried to dominate me or who'd look down on me or who'd you know. Who did? Who saw what I'd done, but not in the context of my story as a whole? Um, they, they weren't. It wasn't those guys that I approached. You know, it was the ones who had shown me kindness and and kind of seeing that. You know, it was the kind of ones that used to say, "You've got so much potential. It's irritating. Why are you yeah. here?" Yeah. You know, it was kind of those ones who used to kind of say that, and 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 sometimes. You know, just, just little things. that They're, they're still officers. I, I've, I've gone back to the main prison where I did most of the, the custodial sentences that I've ever done, and I, I still remember the officers' names who were kind to me, all of them. And I've seen, I've seen a couple of them since. They wouldn't recognise me because I'm unrecognisable physically as well as, you know, emotionally, mentally and professionally as well.
0: So when you decided to get better and you decided you wanted to live i presume within prison you would have done lots of different programs and courses and can you tell us a bit about the courses that spoke to you and then the courses that didn't
3: so so the ones that spoke to me i did a a a treatment program interested in interestingly and I was using all the way through it and it was called the short duration program I don't know if they still run it now but it was uh, essentially it, it, it was to support people in addiction to kind of exit um, and it but it was the facilitator so I've met her again since and uh, she and I'll, ne- I'll never forget her she, she she again she made a link so she was probably the first person that supported me to make a link between what I'd been through and what I'd done to cope with what I'd been through. And that gave me a different context because it meant that I didn't have to keep trying to live to the label of, well, I'm just bad, that's just what I do. She said to me, if, if, you've, do, if you've lived and you've gone through this, 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 this and this, why wouldn't you? that was a revelation to me, you know, and and, and she would put it in the context of somebody else. and, and, And she would say to me, okay, so if somebody was stood in front of you and they told you that they'd been through this, 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 and this, would you blame them? for making poor choices later on or ending up in in exactly the same situation as their parents did. No, you would understand. So understand that of yourself and work to change the consequences of what you've been through so you don't have to medicate it. Essentially, she was talking about trauma and the consequences of it. I, I, I didn't know that. Nobody had ever told me that.
0: Had anyone even said the word trauma to you? Did you even kind of know what trauma was? Did you understand that you'd been through the trauma that you'd been through?
3: No, not at all. Because it was all within the context of normal. Hmm. You know, I I heard somebody say a a, a year or two ago that everybody lives in a house called normal. And I lived in a house called normal Mm -hmm. as much as anybody else did, you know. And so, no, I didn't. I had no idea. I'd done no study. That was the first time anybody had spoken to me about that. You know, and it was was mind-boggling to make a connection between... What had happened, and and how I'd managed it? Yeah, I'd managed it poorly by society standards, by my own standards but at least I knew why. At least there was a why. That why was so important because it meant I wasn't truly lost. That why was crucial for me. It meant that there was hope for me and that I could change it and that I could go somewhere and that there was a possibility that I wasn't going to get buried next to my dad. Thank you so
0: much for telling me your story. Um, I know it's difficult and I just want to let you know that it's really, truly appreciated. It's nice to talk to you. Katie's story illustrates so brilliantly and so well how historic trauma carries on playing such a live part in the present. So she talks about those footsteps of her rapist coming up behind her. Then she's in a prison and she hears footsteps from officers and from inmates, again coming from behind her. And just reliving that rape over and over and over again and being overwhelmed then by the feelings that she did on the day that the rape took place, like it's happening again. And I think it's really for us to then grab hold of that and work out how we can lead our systems and institutions and staff to work in a more trauma-informed way.
2: Next time, as we continue our series on women surviving trauma... Edwina meets Claire. They gave me a two-year IPP, which is an indeterminate sentence for public protection.
0: Controversial sentence that's now been abolished. Yeah, Yeah, that I still have the life licence for. still have the life licence for. So what that means is I didn't have a release
3: date, so not only have I gone back to the place that I feared the most, like I'd rather have gone back to my dad's, who was abusive, than prison. Now I'm in prison and they're telling me, you might never get out. Like,
0: I remember, I, like, I can feel it, that the door shutting and, like, me feeling so suffocated that, like, I might never get out of here.
2: That's Claire's story on the next Justice Podcast. This podcast is brought to you in association with One Small Thing. For more information, go to onesmallthing.org.uk. Look for Justice and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Justice is an MIM production. For more information, go to madeinmanchester.tv.